Uh, if you're new, just really, really want to say, just in particular, glad that you're here with us. Uh, we always say we know that there's a, a lot of uh, new faces we see each week, so we want to be mindful of you and just welcome you, let you know that we're lo- we love that you're here to, to partake in and really witness basically what we see and what you're seeing as a worship service. So um, if you're trying to make sense of all this, this is basically, if you want to boil it down, there's one person who was God, he was God's son, and he's part of the Trinitarian God that we worship, and he came and lived the obedient life necessary for sinners who were in glad rebellion to him in his name, and he took and paid the debt in full as our substitute in our place and rose validating that he defeated death, Satan, sin, and that we could be made one with him, that we could be reconciled with him, that all that happened, we got kicked out of the garden that we try to get back into in Genesis 3 uh, can happen again one day in its fullness and even now um, as we grow in the image of Jesus Christ. And so we worship this Jesus by singing. You might think that's kind of odd, but it's really not. Uh, Some of you guys go to concerts, raise your hand, scream, shout uh, to people you don't even know. So uh, this is glad that we sing to a creator, a God that we know, that we love, that we are intimately a part of in this relationship. So we, we worship him by, by the songs that we just sang. We worship him by studying the scriptures, which we're going to do right now, because we believe that the Bible is God's revelation to us. He gives us revelation in creation, in his son, and in the scriptures. And it's all that he's wanted to say. You've got 66 books that wrap up for you all that God wants to communicate to us in his written revelation. So we love to worship it. And I always say, and I want to continue to say that no matter what book you're in, you're going to see this book, this revelation from God point to Jesus Christ. So um, Jesus is the answer to everything. He's the center of the solar system, the center of our existence, the place that we find all of our identity, all of our worth, all of our value in. And so uh, as we read even a book like Ecclesiastes, like we've been and we've seen that this still even, you see a silhouette of Jesus Christ in his great gospel still beaming through. And so it's been fun to kind of witness that. We also... um, worship Jesus by uh, observing and taking what's known as the Lord's Supper, and that's where we're nourished by remembering these saving benefits that we've received in Jesus Christ, and we worship by giving. We give in those small silver boxes on the back because God gave most profoundly generously in His Son, so we give back to Him. It's really all of His anyways, and I want to say if you're new, visiting, not a regular attender or member, don't give. That's not why we are glad you're here. We're glad because you get to hear the story of redemption bound up in God's Word. So um, lastly, um, as we gather, I'm going to continue to say every single morning we come in this room, uh, there is nothing that's going to happen this morning if the Holy Spirit of God does not fall and wake us up. Um, So you can come in and hear good sermons and sing really loud, and you can uh, pray and bear burdens, and those things are right and good, but you got to understand the ingredient to all of that to make anything happen is the third member of the Trinity, which we like to excuse and sometimes dismiss. And the reason I'm after that is Solomon's been talking about wisdom, and you can't glean wisdom if you're not empowered by the the spirit of wisdom. That's the Holy Spirit. So some of us are all about God the Father and Jesus, and the Holy Spirit's kind of the stepchild that's off to the side. So well, we want to gladly invite him, ask him to speak, ask him to remove scales, ask him to open deaf ears and help us to see and understand what we are incapable of seeing and understanding without illumination. Okay, so I want you to do that individually right now. Uh, whatever space you find your heart in this morning, whether you're restless, anxious, depressed, discouraged, uh, whether you're conflicted, convicted, um, ask the Holy Spirit of God who is real, who is part of his nature and character to do something in you. Okay, don't just expect by osmosis you listening to me say some things for you to radically leave different. Okay, so let's take a moment just in silence. Why don't you do that? Ask him. And if you're in this room not a Christian, like this is weird, eerie, not quite sure how to understand this, maybe just plead that the God, if he exists, would reveal himself to you, that he might show himself to you. 
and surprise you in his glory. Father, help us this morning to feel the weight of our dependence on a God who sovereignly rules and reigns over all things. God, help us to remember our place before you. God, help us to remember our humanity and your deity. God, help us to be swept up in the glory that is the work of Jesus this morning. Help us to know you, love you, and cherish you more because we were together today. Father, help us to see you more rightly. God, speak to us through your word. God, give us understanding. Give us wisdom. Give us clarity in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're going to be in chapter 8 this morning. So if you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, I always say there's Bibles in the back. Uh, Please grab one. Take it home if you don't own one. That's our gift to you. Also, if there are maybe a few seats in the middle, if you could move in to uh, move some room for people walking in, that'd be great. Um, Here's what we're going to see. Um, If you've just been like kind of dropping in Ecclesiastes, this is kind of the issue with uh, this book. And I always say if you miss his method, you miss his message. So uh, Solomon is the guy writing this, and he's not basically trying to give you answers to everything, but more lay questions before you that cause you to see the answers that, not, that don't basically live under the sun but over the sun and how this God lives, rules, and reigns, how meaning is found in him, that worth is found in him, that all the, the why questions you ask are actually and ultimately found and answered in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so I want to start with a verse last week because um, he basically takes the perspective of lots of different people. So if this is your first sermon in Ecclesiastes uh, with us, you need to go back and start listening because he takes on the place of the secularist, the humanist, the uh, empiricist, all these different positions that the world and human philosophy would say, hey, this is how you learn meaning, this is how you find understanding. He he eventually gets to this point where now we're being delivered from the meaninglessness of life. So you've kind of missed that. He's going to have undertones of it, but to get the full meat of that, you're going to have to listen. So um, understand, we're carrying on in all of that discussion that's been happening in this book. And he said last week, uh, Pastor McKinney said, he ended in verse 29, he said, God has made man upright. Okay, so that's a, that's a really profound place to start. What that means is that, that it was God's design, it was God's order, it was God's hope, God's plan, and we perverted all of that, right, in leaving what was good, what was right, and so what happens is in the fall in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve sin, is we now don't just wake up one day progressively learning sin and rebellion, it's in you from day one. And so because it's in you from day one, we now operate not only as fractured people, but under fractured systems, Right? So it doesn't just somehow individually affect us, it, it horizontally affects us as a community of people, as a global humanity. And so he's going to basically continue to show that there's this wisdom we need in operating as fractured people with fractured souls under fractured institutions. And so as we continue to, to read this, we see that in Genesis 3, the pangs of death, disturbance, fracture enter human history, and the only way to get out of this is to embrace Jesus Christ to get back on the right path to now image the greatness and glory of God. And until you do that, everything is messed up. But even in that, here's the question this morning. Um, Life's suffering and life's unfairness doesn't leave, right? So listen, um, if you're new to Christianity, like when you become a Christian, suffering and unfairness doesn't somehow evaporate. 
right? So those of us in the room who are Christians, who love him, who follow him, who serve him, you didn't repent of your sin, embrace Jesus, and then all of a sudden your life was awesome, right? Actually, in fact, it probably got worse, right, by, by human standards, right? I mean, suffering increased, friends decreased, right? Maybe there's some family animosity. Maybe there's some things that are happening at work now. Are you realizing I have to view this through a, a, a lens of, of God and not a lens of me, not human wisdom, but God's wisdom. So all of a sudden, things get weird. And so if life's unfairness, if, if life's injustice, if, the feel, if, if we feel the weight of the suffering around us, how do we live in this already not yet? How do, how do we operate in that? And that's why Solomon's getting to this place of, let me give you some wisdom for that. Let me help you understand how to live in the here and now. And this morning, he's going to try to thread a needle a bit um, between this understanding of even though life is harsh, it's brutal, it's unfair, it's unjust, God is not simply about just enduring life, but actually enjoying life. <laughs> Good news. Amen? I mean, he's not just about you kind of just pushing your way through, and I just got to endure this thing. He actually wants you to enjoy it with gladness. That's actually the heart of God. He's not saying turn a blind eye to suffering and turn a blind eye to tragedy, but when you've done all that God has asked you to do, walk in glad submission and enjoy him and enjoy his gifts. And so that's where we're going to see him try to thread the needle of this morning. And underneath all that continues to be this stuffing of the nagging question of the why. Why are we here? What's the meaning of all this? Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Here is what he writes. He says, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Um, Solomon's going, a life that's under the sun with fracture, imperfection, injustice naturally creates a life, right, that's filled with ethical dilemmas, choices, decisions. Um, do I take this job or not? Do I marry this person or not? Do I get it, gather with this church or not? Do I take this particular avenue to go to work or not? Do I, I can range from big to small, but there are decisions that we make. Do I buy this house or not? Do I give money to this cause or not? And he says, wisdom allows you to interpret how to respond. It gives peace to your soul and patience to your emotions. Right? So, so godly wisdom, he's going to continue to show you. This isn't wisdom fueled by you. It's, it's wisdom fueled by him. Right? So it's not you digging in your mental bank going, i got to figure out how to do this thing. It's what does God say already? So you're set to go before you even get your Starbucks in the morning. And so here's how he is showing us that we need wisdom, we need interpretation. And this all means what? We desperately need to be led by the Holy Spirit of God, right? I mean, we desperately need him, right? You can see this when you walk up to people. Um, wisdom makes a person's face shine. You ever been with really wise, grounded people, Christian men and women, Right, where God is with me, God has not forsaken me, God holds me, God leads me. Those people you just want to be around, they steady you, right? They bring ease to you, not greater grief or anxiousness. That's what he says. He says, true wisdom makes your face shine and the hardness of your face change. Um, real quick, I'm, I'm curious how your relationship is with the Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, I mean, most of us boast about loving Jesus with all our might and all our strength and all our soul, but do you love the Holy Spirit? Like, do you mind for wisdom? Do you, do you plead with him to lead you as you wake up in the morning? Say, God, lead me, instruct me, comfort me. Like, where do you go for comfort? Do you go to the Holy Spirit? 
Because according to Jesus' life, he gladly rejoiced in, was led by, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was led, fueled, empowered by, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, we should do that too. Well, we should plead. That's why, when we, that's why we pray at 9 a.m. That's why we have corporate prayer. That's why I pray before sermons because we have to be keenly aware that we're not in this thing alone, that God has gifted us an actual member of himself to lead, God, instruct, and comfort. So, so where do you mind for wisdom? Where do you seek out your counsel and how do you do that? We're going to know in the scriptures, right, to mind wisdom, we go instructed and led by his spirit to God's people and to God's word. So do you seek out people's counsel who are led by the spirit? As you watch people's life, do you say, man, yeah, they seem to be led by the spirit of God. Their decisions, uh, what you see in their life, what you witness, it seems like they make decisions not based on their own wisdom, but how God would lead them and say what would be right and wrong. What type of people do you go to? How's your study of the Bible? And, and not just looking for what's true. Like, I know we got plenty of cerebral people in here, right? Where we just want to stuff our heads with theology, right? Like, I just want to know, and I'm all about that. You know that, right? So, but we want to know who God is, know his character, know sound doctrine. But I mean, from that, do you move on from not just what's true then, but to how do these implications affect my understanding of my sexuality, of my marriage, of my singleness, of my parenting, of my operations among the family of God? Do you let it actually have implications for you, or do you, do you just want to know what's true? Or do you not want to be really led by the Spirit into that truth? You just want to stay over here and go, cool, I know some big, weighty, heady stuff, but don't let it bear on me in any way. And he's saying, man, wisdom means that we walk in this thing, that we desperately need how to move as the people of God, not just think right, but then act right and feel right. Does it inform your decisions? You know, the reason I say this is the drift of the human soul is always going to be towards self-reliance. Like, I don't care who you are, right, Christian or not. Like, the drift of your heart is always going to be to, I need to work out with my wisdom, my might, my thoughts, my emotions. I'm going to figure out the whole matrix of life and then tell everybody else how it's going to work. Right? That's how we all feel that. We all have that bent. We all have that drifting. And it's amazing. We want to drift away from the God who made us and say, I've figured this out. But we have to understand, as the people of God, we have not been designed ever to operate outside of the Holy Spirit's power. Ever. Like, like if you start finding yourself in that lane, God didn't design you for that. He didn't design you just to know some things and then figure it out on your own. He actually indwells you, right? He cleans out your temple through the work of Jesus Christ. His spirit can't dwell in something unclean, so you're cleaned out positionally in Jesus Christ. He justifies you, dwells you with his spirit, and then says, okay, that's going to fuel you, empower you, comfort you, guide you, protect you, help you. He uses amazing terminology in the New Testament Gospels. And Jesus will go farther to say, hey, if I don't leave, you can't be led by him. You can't have him in his fullness. That's why at Pentecost, you see the Holy Spirit falling, ignite the church. And that thing that ignited the church is the thing that sustains the church and keeps the church moving. So it's not our wisdom, our might, our skill, our talent. Because what he's saying is a meaningful life is one filled with wisdom from God, not wisdom from you. At the end of the day, that's the whole, that's all where it rests. Now, you're going to see why he's saying this, because he ultimately wants to get you to God. It's not really a, 
a theology on submitting to institutions, even though he's going to go next here and show us, okay, because you're fractured, the people above you are fractured. Look at what he says in verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. So he says, because we live fracture, we live under imperfect authorities. Remember, Romans 13, let all Scripture inform you under God's right rule and reign and perfect authority. So, so God has put authorities there. He's put institutions there. He lays all this before us. We're under that. And because we're under imperfect systems, we need wisdom as to how to engage the people above us, how to engage our boss and our leaders and our pastors and everybody who is in some sort of authority and our spouses. He's saying we need wisdom in that. You can really put anything in this junk drawer that he's laying before us. Now, he's not saying that all authority should be submitted to. That's why he says, now, don't take your stand in an evil cause. If your authority is leading you to sin, then we don't follow that, right? I say this all the time when we're talking in preparing for marriage counseling. You, You rightly and gladly submit to the godly leadership of your husband, but if he's leading you to sin, you don't follow that. You say, no, you got to get your heart straight with God, and then, then I'll listen, maybe. <laughs> right? But if he's causing you to sin, if he's leading you to something that is against God's good design and will for you, no, you don't follow that. But as a whole, we have this good understanding that God rules over them, and so there's some sort of semblance of peace. Wisdom makes your face shine at the end of the day, even amidst corrupt systems, because you know who properly reigns on the throne. You know what other thrones are going to be done away with in the end and who will still sit on his own throne. Where there will be no protests, where there will be no marches, where there will be no arguments, no elections, no wars. Where one good perfect king will reign and rule perfectly and justly and rightly for eternity. And that's our Jesus Christ. But until then, he's showing we live in this weird phase. And so, underneath all this, he's saying, not every hill is worth dying on. Right? In wherever you are, um, there's a time and way for everything, he says. Listen, introspection, seeking the Holy Spirit of God, seeking godly counsel, praying. I mean, actually praying. You know, it's like, yeah, I prayed about it. I'm good now. Really, that means you just decided to make the decision, right? Now, there are times where you need to just make the decision and not pray, but there are other times where it's, it's clear and weighty. You've got to seek God's counsel, seek the Holy Spirit's leading and wisdom, ask other people what they think and make that decision. But introspection is imperative before you go and do stuff. Because the wise person stops and thinks through and acts appropriately. The fool just gets fired up, gets all emotional, heads in the firing squad thinking he can tame the lion. And that usually doesn't end well. So if you are somebody who is constantly just fixing what's wrong with everybody else before doing introspection in your own heart, that's a dangerous place to be, especially with authority. He's saying you should constantly look for ways that you look at yourself first. So if you're always looking for a war or to jump on the bandwagon, that's not always godly or wise. He's not saying we don't operate or engage. He's saying do it in a godly and wise way. Do it in a right way. Do it in a way that's led by wisdom. So when things lie heavy on you, what's your default response? Maybe you're in that situation this morning. What's, the, what's just the pulse of your heart naturally? 
to get super emotional, worked up, and head to the firing squad? I'm going to tell them exactly what I think and what I want to do and what should be done. And it says, easy. Remember that God rules over them. Remember, God positioned and instituted every authority. Seek godly counsel. Talk to your elders. Seek wisdom from the Holy Spirit. And then move forward. Don't take your stand in every cause because some might be evil, so don't give authority to everybody. But understand at the same time, all authority is given, but you're ultimately submitting to Christ, not to them. If Jesus Christ, let's think about this, could live under a godless Roman Empire and pay his taxes, <laughs> I think we're okay. Right? Listen, we're not back with Nero, and you don't want to be. Some of you think Trump is Nero. Whatever. That's your opinion thought. But, I mean, listen, the godless Roman Empire that was slaughtering people that got in their way, that were leading multiple uh, you know, men, women, children into slavery, doing horrific things at the cost of their own name. That's all they care about. Godless empire. And Jesus himself walks, lives, and pays his taxes to that. I think we can learn something. That there's an obedience Jesus learned. There's a submission Jesus learned. There's a reality Jesus learned in how authority is established and who's really in charge. Profound. So wisely, wisely engage those over you. Don't just blow up at your parents, kids. Don't just blow up at your boss. Don't just blow up at your spouse. Wisdom, he says, makes the face shine. Emotions are patient. Face is steady. In all this, he's saying we need wisdom in living in a fractured body under fractured systems. Here's why this is so important. is because I'm kind of nervous <laughs> because I know the lack of the role of the Bible and the Holy Spirit in many of our lives in making decisions and doing things and operating I know there's a big vacuum. Now, I'm not saying that I do this perfectly. I'm just saying, in general, I'm being swept up into this category too. As a, as a whole of the people of God, I'm sure that all of us would say there is more of pursuing His wisdom, His counsel, His spirit before I probably make a majority of the things that I do. And because of this, Solomon's warning us and saying, remember that you need to see the world rightly. You need to see yourself rightly. You need to understand what God has asked of you and what he hasn't asked of you. You need to get in tune with that. That's why we love sitting under preaching. That's why we love gathering in groups. That's why we love discipling one another. That's why we love teaching one another so that we can learn what it means to walk in wisdom that's from God and not from us. We constantly need to realign and reorient our hearts because the scriptures here are going to say that we need to know who we are and what Jesus Christ has asked of us before you ever get going. Before you ever wake up and get your morning coffee and head to work, we should already know because we've been tuning ourselves to the Spirit's leading and others' leading. We've been tuning ourselves to the ways that God would say we act and function, not the other. I say all the time, man, if I do not have prayer, if I do not seek God's face in some way, shape, or form before I wake up, my emails will be impatient and probably brutal. Right? Like, I mean, I just can't do it. I just, you wake up, I go to my inbox, it's just, right? It's just firing squad, right? So I have to find a way in my heart to have my, my emotions steady. How does God want me to respond? What is the heart of Jesus Christ? How do we shepherd and lead? And God, if I don't do that, if I don't take time to tune my heart to Holy Spirit of God, how do you want me to walk and respond and think? I'll be a train wreck. The first to admit it. How many of us have sent that reply and you wish you could grab it as it exited? your computer and entered the orbit, orbit, you're like, oh, no, no, maybe it hasn't landed yet. Maybe I can still catch it. 
Someone's saying, learn wisdom. Godly wisdom, not human wisdom. Learn the ways that Jesus would have you walk and act. Now, listen, Solomon's not trying to give us a breakdown of submitting to authority. That's not the point. The point of all this is he wants to get you to God. That's the whole letter. He wants you to get to the God over the Son, and that's where he's going to take you here in verse 7. This is his point. For he does not know what is to be, verse 7. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the Spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. And all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. He says, as we live as fractured men and women under fractured institutions, you know what you're going to want to do? control all of it. You're going to want to be the functional savior in the universe. In your home life, in your kid's life, in your work life, in your church life. You're going to totally forget your frailty, your insufficiency, and your place before God. And you're going to think you have all the answers in your wisdom without seeking the wisdom of God. Sobering, right? I mean, Solomon, man, he, he was a guy in charge of so much land, huge military staff of 35,000, had kings and queens coming to him to learn things. He goes, man, you bet he learned no matter how much power you have, how much prestige you have, how much wealth you have, how much wisdom you have, you're still at the end of the day not going to be able to control the things that only God is in charge of. Listen, no one in this room can predict the future. That's what he's saying right? None of us are omniscient. None of us are omnipotent, right? Listen, none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow other than maybe the sun rising, right? So we could all say, right, we get out, we can act like we know the future. I know the sun's going to rise. Other than that, you know nothing. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know what emotions you're going to feel. You didn't have an expiration tag come out of you when you came down the birth canal. Like, nothing you know. You know nothing other than I am here today. I am breathing by God's gift of grace. I have what's before me this afternoon. He's called me to be obedient, to be repentant, to be faithful, to be engaging in a loving, wise way. That's all I have. I don't have tomorrow. I can't see anything beyond the clock of what the next minute says. Now listen, we fool ourselves thinking we can, and Solomon's going, that's craziness. That's why seeking your own ways and your own wisdom will always lead to a train wreck instead of seeking God's wisdom. And remember, who rules and reigns over all things? Who stands outside of time? Doesn't just know the future, but stands in the future. So where is your peace coming from? Where is your rest coming from? that you can organize your life and keep it all straight, or that God reigns over it. He's a good father who's always for you, not against you, who can bring any charge against you. Nothing. Well, we don't learn how to walk in that and live in that magically. It's over time, right? It's as we grow in godliness. I always say when you see somebody who loves Jesus, pursues Jesus, has a knowledge of the word, understand they didn't arrive there from yesterday. Like, it's years of growing in godliness. They don't wake up one morning going, man, I know all this. I've figured out how, do I, how I operate in life. I always tell people, man, my counseling has grown because of how much bad counseling I've given. Right? Ten years ago, right, when I first entered the ministry as a young buck, right, at like 22, 23, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm giving out stuff. I look back at sermons. Going, I can't believe I said that. I tell my wife, I can't, can you believe I said that? A sermon? I actually believed that? Right? You, you form over time. There's grace for you. You mature. 
You learn what it means to walk with God and walk with the people of God. There are so many new Christians in this room. Some of you guys, last year you became a Christian. Listen, you're going to continue to learn what it means to walk with Jesus Christ. And listen, you on the tail end, you're still going to keep learning what it means to walk with Jesus Christ, right? Humility marks us. Teachability marks us. We have to remember that we are in a direction and we don't know what tomorrow holds, so it is necessary that we know what God thinks and says. This is why he says, no man controls the power of life and death. You can't retain your life or the life of others. You have no control over that. You can't protect that as much as we want to. You know what he's doing? He is just pegging our ill-sufficiency. He is just pegging our frailty. How needy we are. (laughs) How weak we are. (laughs) How dumb we are. Right? Can you laugh at yourself? I mean, right? How we can't see beyond 1051, yet we've already planned how everything should run and operate. And God's saying there's glad joy in resting in me. So we wisely, biblically, patiently, humbly engage those in authority and those in the life around us, remembering that ultimately God rules over them and us. This gives peace to your soul and patience to your emotions. And here's why. This is his point. Full justice comes eventually. Full rightness comes eventually. Full reigning and ruling with God, seeing how he's made it all and designed it all, right? We see dimly this side of heaven, but we will see just as he sees when we are made just like him when we are with him face to face. Verse 10, here's what he says. Then I saw, he just lists out the injustice that you see. He lists out the unfairness. He just states the obvious, okay? Verse 10, he says, Then I saw the wicked buried, and they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised by the city that had done such things. He goes, man, I went to funerals of people who were wicked people or people getting up just praising them, saying how awesome they were. And I'm going, what are you talking about? There are long lines just celebrating them, giving money to their families. That's unfair, right? He says, this is vanity, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. This I also said is vanity. Listen, he is, he is in your head right now. He is so in our heads. He just lists out the injustice, and he says, you see, it's meaningless if there is no God with just judgment. Everything you witness, everything you try to control, Yeah, it's meaningless, it's futile, it's craziness if there's no God who has right justice and right judgment. He says, you know what? You're going to see someone in your office. You're going to see someone in your church. You're going to see someone in your family. You're going to see someone at your school. (laughs) Do something wicked and not only get away with it, they're going to gain from it their income's going to grow. Their friends are going to increase. Their pleasure's going to seem to obtain something that you chase. And he goes, because of that, you know what? They're going to keep doing it. 
And they're going to continue down that path, believing that because there's no apparent consequence, I'll just keep doing it because there's nothing before me that seems to go wrong. There's no seeming you know, uh, consequence for my actions, so I'll just continue down this path, all blinded to the ultimate justice of God. He goes, and then you know what you're going to see? You're going to see a righteous, faithful brother or sister love Jesus and go flat broke. Lose their house. Suffer unjustly. Be treated unfairly. You're going to go, what's going on? Like in my, like, you know, my scale, this isn't adding up right. This is not right. The injustice, the unfairness is clear to me. And as all of it happens for the wicked, you might be tempted to attribute it as good. That's what he's saying. So you'll start to feel like, maybe I should join them. Right? I mean, maybe I'm on the wrong team. Maybe God's way, God's commands are just exhausting. Maybe I'd be really free if I could just live free, right? He's saying be so careful as you watch wickedness happen ten times over before God ever gets involved. We got to base what we believe on what is true and not what we feel. I say all the time, majority of human history bases what they will believe not on what they desire, or they don't believe base it based on what is true, but what they desire. Listen, there's so many things in the Bible that don't sit well with me, but I believe them because I believe it's God's word to me. I believe it's true, and I have no other option but to trust that he rules and reigns, that he has set this whole thing up, and that I have a puny, fallen brain that went to public school that can't quite figure it out, and that God has it all in order. It's intrinsically in me. He stamped me in his image. He's put eternity in my heart. He has glory before me, and I can walk in that gladly knowing this is right, even if I see wickedness happen 50 times over and God apparently not get involved. Solomon says, here's my advice. Be very, very, very careful. You let that thinking bleed into your brain because wisdom will say the king is coming right wisdom will say justice will be served wisdom will say don't buy the lie of genesis 3 that you can be your own god and run the world the way you want and that death won't happen to you yes they bought the lie and then death entered all of human history because of their sin Wisdom says the king is coming because, brothers and sisters, God is love. Love is not God. God is just, holy, right, and he enacts justice perfectly and with full authority because he can. Which is why he says the fear of God is the cure. In your temptation, just go along with the wicked, go along with the unrighteous. And I'm not talking about Christians being perfect. I'm talking about unregenerate, not saved, don't love Jesus, believing that the world's way leads to life. If you believe that and buy that lie, he's saying, be very, very careful because what that's revealing is you have a God issue. You don't fear God. You don't fear the just judge. You don't fear the God and remember your place before him and his place above you. You believe that you're the creator, not the created. You've forgotten that you're the created being and he's the creator. That's what he's revealing here. That's what he's getting at here. 
Do you fear God in the way that leads you to his grace? Romans 2, man, I thought it was the kindness of God that would lead you to repentance. I thought it was me being so kind, so patient, so loving, so long-suffering with you in your consistent rebellion, still thinking that you knew better than me, that he continues to show love, grace, and mercy. I thought that would just blow your mind in such a way that repentance would be caused. Does it lead you to grace? Does the fear of God lead you to wisdom and not folly? Are you operating in such a way, man, that when you read this book, you, you think you're just talking to a pal? That God's saying things to you in here, but you treat him like it's just somebody giving suggestions. That it's not the creator who actually fashioned you and made you and wired you. That he's laying before you real, divine, beautiful, magnificent truths that transform you and lead you to fullness of life. Solomon says, be careful how you see the world. Learn to view it through an eternal lens and not a temporary lens. Right, this is First Peter, the nearsighted man. Always falls into sin because he just sees what's right here. Well, there's pleasure right there. He doesn't think about his family. He doesn't think about next week. He doesn't think about his life in the future. He just sees nearsightedly. So I'll just take this right now because it looks so good. And he doesn't see the snares and the pangs of it behind it. This is any addiction, any idolatry. We've been talking about this at length. So he says, be careful how you view the world because in the end, God will judge. Now, why is this so important, guys? Because we have to learn to view the world rightly. You may see people get out of trouble by further sin, and they'll continue to do that until they stand before Jesus. You'll, you'll see that happen. Listen, you're going to see it happen. So if you know you're going to see it happen, then when those things happen, you're not blindsided. You're going, oh, the Scriptures already told me that would happen. I'm seeing the world rightly. I'm not surprised. It only affirms the testimony of the Word. I always say the burden of proof is on the critic more than the Christian the more you read the Scripture. And here we see that no one gets away with anything. Is this you? Do you live in secret sin, a secret life with secret lusts and secret lies? And maybe for some of you, there's no consequence. And so it only encourages and bolsters your confidence in you so you can keep going down that path, buying the lie that nothing will really ever happen to you. Is that you? Are you in that dangerous spot? Where you think you're invincible and you know the future and you're in control of your life and you're the judge and you decide what's right and wrong? Are you tampering and treading on his glory? Because listen, those who take that path are not avoiding justice. You're just stacking up transgressions for the day of justice. You're not avoiding God saying, hey, you either leaned into Jesus Christ for the payment of your sin and walked with me or you refused me and tried to do it your own way. The only way to my, me is my son, Jesus Christ. And what we decide will dictate what we do. And if you lived in a society, think about this, where there were no rules, no laws, no kings, would you act differently? Seriously, honestly. If you lived in a society and culture where there were no rules, no kings, 
no authorities. You had full freedom to do whatever you want. Still knowing what God has said, how would you live? Is the only thing restraining you human systems? That's what I'm getting at, right? Or is it the fear of God? Is it that you know Him and you tremble before Him in a way that creates this glad obedience because you know He's leading you into life and not trying to take life from you? Do you understand His character and nature in such a way that you love submitting to Him as a good Father, not as a cosmic killjoy? How have you learned to think about Him and see Him Because most people don't live as though God is actually going to judge us. I'd argue most Christians, right? I sit down with appointments and it's just like, leave. I'm going, I don't don't think there's any semblance of God is actually going to have a stand before him and give an account of our life. I think that's totally lost. And because we're made in the image of a just and holy God, truth is we want this. We want justice to prevail. We want darkness to be pushed back. We all really want to know when's sheriff coming to town, right? We all want to know that. As you look at unfairness, the, the reality is, though, sometimes we're so consumed with looking at the unfairness of the world that we never take honest stock of our own souls. So we go, man, yeah, the whole world's messed up, unjust, and that's where you start not walking in wisdom, but arrogance, so you start telling everybody else how to live. Meanwhile, you're, go, you're just, your own railway's jacked up, and your train is headed off course, and you're so stuck on everything else that you forget you will stand before God and give an account. Now, praise God for Christ who steps in and stands for us in our place and says, I'll pay the debt, I'll take his accrued transgression for all his rebellion against me, and I will stand in his place, I will gift my righteousness to him so you'll be scot free but that does not create a heart then that says I want to get away from things and live hidden it creates a life that says I want to live out in the open confess my sin and love him because there's no other place to be there's no other hiding place there's no other refuge there's no other safe space or spot other than when God holds me so so where are you where, where do you fall what's the place that you land Now listen, justice comes in the cross of Jesus Christ or at the white throne of Jesus Christ. So it's coming either way. You can have it paid in full at his cross and in his personal work, or you can have it paid at the white throne judgment where he will say, I never knew you. You were not mine. But until now, he gives us opportunity for justice to be paid. Here's why this is so striking, guys. Although Ecclesiastes is written a couple thousand years ago, doesn't it just resonate with your heart, though? Isn't that amazing? Because here's, here's the reality, right? Even though some of us, maybe even this, in this room, right, we've concluded that there's no place for a personal God who made us for the express purpose of knowing him, enjoying him, and giving him worship, right? Who one day we will stand before and give an account, who he has the full right to judge our lives based upon how we lived and whether we leaned into Jesus Christ or not, right? So he has no express right to do that. We have this theology that we've wrapped up, right? So we don't, even though we have concluded there's no place for that type of God, you still find yourself asking the why question, right? And here's the thing, even though you can't find out your answer to the why, it pegs you and bothers you and gnaws at you all day long. Because you've somehow been brought up in the system that says, okay, well, matter plus time plus chance equals meaning. 
And Romans 1 actually answers for you why you feel that way, why you're pressed that way. It says the truth has been made plain to you, but you suppress it, right? So you don't want to stand with God or before Him. You'd rather ignore it and walk the other way. Romans 1 levels this out and places this right before us in a way that is absolutely staggering, that God has stamped us in our image, given us a sense of moral right and wrong, placed eternity in our hearts, and we turn our back and can't escape it. Why can't I find reason? Why can't I find answers? That why question keeps pegging you over and over. So imagine, right? You're a school teacher or your referee, and you guys play sports, or even in school, two common places, right? You're in this environment, right? And let's say the ref gets up and says, okay, uh, blue team, you get an automatic win. Red team, you're going to lose automatically, right? That's not fair. You're not even giving us a shot, right? Or the teacher says, hey, uh, you guys are all going to ace this class. You guys are all going to fail this class. What's going to rise up in you immediately? Unfairness, right? Well, hold on a second. That's going to bother you. Well, hold on. Why is it okay? Why is it right that I can just, you know, not do anything, not perform before we've even had a chance to do anything, and you say that I deserve a failing grade or I deserve a loss? Or the other way, how can you be so sure that they deserve an A, that they deserve that pleasure or they deserve to win, right? The, the, The nagging question of unfairness is going to eat at you. Now, here's the question. You're all going to say that, but what gave you any sense of unfairness? What gave you any sense of injustice? What caused you even think or, or consider that? Right? And then all of a sudden, the teacher, the referee starts busting out moral philosophy and how uh, this is how you understand what it means to you know, understand right and wrong and fairness and morality and how you're a human being that has this philosophy woven into you so that you think this without even realizing it. This whole understanding of fairness, of justice, that that why question, the strangeness of getting a win or getting an A with no effort or losing or getting an F with no opportunity continues to gnaw at you. And Solomon is answering this here in saying, life under the sun with no God of justice is unfair. Yeah, the way you think is crazy. You've got no hope for that. You've got no relief for that. We talked about a couple sermons ago how dualism and monism and all those different philosophical thoughts don't help you with suffering and injustice that only the Christian faith does. This is why when you see precious women raped, you say that's unfair. This is why when you see the innocent locked up and the guilty free, you say, That's unfair. This is why when you see people who cheat on their taxes live in bigger houses, you say, that's unfair. This is why when you see hardworking people live in poverty, you say, that's not fair. Everybody says it. Everybody has a system of fairness and justice. The only place you can find resolve for that is in a God who acts justly. There is no other system of faith that has the justice of the God of the Bible. Praise the Lord. And no, vengeance and revenge are different. You'll always see God say, vengeance is mine. Revenge is personal, you and somebody else. He's not trying to avenge your wrongs and rights. 
So be careful that you're not going, oh man, I want God to avenge that person. No, um, vengeance has to do with justice. That's why God only says vengeance is mine because it always has to do only with justice wrongly being done. And what is the greatest, most scandalous injustice of the cosmic universe? Sin against a holy, righteous God that dwells in infinite perfections. And a God that would say, in spite of that, I'm going to come to redeem you, save you, and give you my righteousness. It's incredible. So here's the thing, right? Studied, intelligent men and women choose in their studied intelligence to deny the notion of an existence of a personal creator God who they will stand before and give an account. They avoid that, suppress that, and here's the thing, you have to fill the vacuum with something now, right? What do they fill it with? Walk into Barnes & Noble. Zen is the key to your golf swing. How insane is that? You, you get a book on, hey, here's how the, the Christian, you know, Holy Spirit helps you with your golf swing. That's crazy. That's an outrage. You can't put that in there. I'm going, everything else under the sun is there that is even crazier. This is why, when's the last time you turned on the news and they said, hey, uh, next up, a pastor is going to come in and tell you how you can know how to live and how to deal with life and death and how to know meaning. Well, what do they have? Somebody gets up and says, oh, here's how you stand on your head and breathe right. Right? That's how you find meaning. That's how you escape death. That's how you figure out the meaning to life. I mean, have you actually taken time to stop and think? But it would be crazy for a pastor to get up and quote Hebrews and say, it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. So you must be prepared. That there is a God who desires to save sinful humanity from this fracture that we all feel deep down in our souls and believe is wrong and suffer with unfairness, injustice, and yet we will suppress all of that and try to find these other clever ways to make our way to this resolution. Crazy. And you'll never see it because Romans 1 is true. We suppress it and we don't want to stand with God but away from God. And that's why Jesus Christ, when you got saved, came after you and grabbed the back of your jacket as you were running from him, not wanting him, and your rebellion and said, no, you're my kid. It's amazing. Like, you didn't want him. I mean, nobody woke up going, man, I just want him. The reason you want him is because he grabbed you and showed you that he's so glorious. God does not have to force anybody to love him. God just needs to show himself. Look at me. Okay, I want him, right? I mean, that's all he has to do. He does it in his word. He does it in Jesus Christ. He does it in the cosmos. When we see the glory of God made right in the face of Jesus Christ, we say, I have to have him. He's the answer to every longing and need in my soul. And praise God, he grabs us and gives us freedom. And that's why he ends with a surprising word. This all leads, if you've been reading it, this really is going to surprise you. It surprised me. (laughs) This all leads not to a begrudging life or a burdened life, but a joyful life. (laughs) Look at what he says in verse 15. And I commend joy. What? Were you listening the last 30 minutes? I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom 
and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is profound. Listen, for some of you, this is going to give you such encouragement. And for some of you, you're going to have a hard time with this. He's basically saying, in a wicked, depraved, harsh, unjust, unfair life, how do you live? You submit to the truths of God. You walk in obedience. You repent of sin. And then, Solomon's advice is, you have a great time. Call up some friends. Have a barbecue. Go out to eat. Drink your favorite drink. Fire up the grill. Laugh. Enjoy good company. And just entrust yourself to the hands of God who rules and reigns over everything, knowing it's all in His lap anyways. That you can't control everything. You can't manage everything. You can't fix everything. He's basically saying, don't just endure your life, enjoy your life. As a child of God, we should be some of the happiest people that live. He's not talking about turning a blind eye to injustice, but he's saying when you've done all that God has asked you to do, don't wallow in self-pity. Don't just woe is me. I mean, some of us know this, right? I mean, your, your eyes are wide open to the tragedy of life, the sin that stains us, the death that is before many who do not know Jesus. Some of you guys are like, man, I don't even know why I can sit in my cubicle because there are people perishing. I should be talking to everybody here. I don't even know how to do it. And you're so anxious, it's more debilitating than freeing and life-giving. And God is giving some of you the green light to say, hey, relax. Who's in charge? Not you. Your job's not to fix everything. Your job's not to save everybody. Yes, you should have zeal for the kingdom of God. Yes, you should love people like Jesus. Yes, you should love your neighbor. Yes, you should hate sin and put it to death by the power of the Holy Spirit through the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, you should do all the things, but at the end of the day, when you've done all that God's asked of you, Open up the cooler and enjoy life. Enjoy God's gifts. Go sit on a bench and feel the breeze on your face. Call up some friends. Listen, if you can't take a nap, if you can't slow down, if you can't shut up for a few hours, if you think the world will cease to be a good place solely based upon your actions, you have a God issue. You've forgotten who rules and reigns. And that's really what he's saying. You've forgotten your place before him. There needs to be a place, brothers and sisters, in your mental bank when you know you're operating outside your job description. Make sense? Like there needs to be a place that you get to where you're like, okay, I am, I am operating outside the bounds of what God has asked me to do. I'm trying to be God right now. I'm trying to run the universe right now. Some of us, Solomon's advice is, yes, go after the kingdom and go after justice and go after seeing people saved through the message of the gospel. But would you laugh and drink your lemonade? If you do not believe in the rulership of God, you will be endlessly frustrated and anxious by everything outside of your control even good godly desires, even good godly things put in you. 
I say this a lot, and if you've been with me for a, a short time, one of the things I say a lot is, um, learn to live like an Arminian and just sleep like a Calvinist. Now, if you didn't get that, don't worry about it. But, but here, here's the thing. Like, man, live your life. Yes, like, it depends on you. But then, man, when you go to bed at night, like, like you have a God who never sleeps. Listen, one of the most nourishing things for me as a pastor, one of the best things for me as a pastor is when I lay my head on the pillow at night and my mind is racing. And I'm thinking of all the people that I need to pray for and all the people I want to help them with this issue and this problem and, and, and help them see more of God in this way and comfort them in this way. Man, the only thing that frees me as I lay my head on the pillow is remembering as I sleep, I serve a God who never sleeps. Like He has all of our lives. He's controlling all of our lives. I can't control people's lives even if I tried to. But God has it. God has got it. So where, I want to end with this question, where are you currently operating outside of your job description? Whether it's in work or at home or in the church, where you feel like God has asked some of you that he hasn't asked of you. And it's more debilitating than freeing for you. Is there an area you feel weighty and hard that keeps you up at night? Listen, if you have prayed and lived obediently and repented, lay it in the Lord's loving lap going, God, you've got it in your merciful hands. So I can go have a barbecue tonight and not worry about it, not feel bad about it. I can enjoy a little bit of laughter and reclining in my chair. Others of you, you don't need that. You need to be moved towards greater zeal. This is not an excuse to be lazy. It's an invitation from God as we work hard for the kingdom, we get to rest well for the kingdom. That that's okay. It's good advice from Solomon for some of us. Because I believe there's a way in which social media has totally and slowly dismantled our ability to see the goodness of God and what God's doing. I often have this picture of, I'm on my phone, my son Jackson's right in front of me, playing with his trains, laughing, eating his Cheerios, smiling, saying, Daddy, look. And I've got my phone, and I'm just reading the horrors in the world. I mean, you, you can't get a news report without it just rotting at your soul. I, I mean, I don't know how you do it, right? And it can just weigh on you to a point where you just feel like there's no hope. This is impossible. And I get this picture all the time where I see this, and it's like God's going, look at your son. Look at how happy he is. Look at how much he loves being in your home. Look how beautiful he is. Look at the ways he calls you dad. Playing with trains. Go get on the floor. Take him out on his scooter. Because you're so aware of so many things, you miss what God is doing and what He's invited you into. Right? It's only because social media now shows that we can now be aware of it. Right? It's not something that we can see. We didn't know it before, but now that it's present, it hits us in a different way. So brothers or sisters, where do you need to just enjoy God? Where do you need to say, like, I don't control that? And that isn't what God's asked me to control. Where do you need to just submit well 
and then live in the reigns and the, in the realms that God's asked you to live and then say, okay. Because here's how the gospel shines through all of this, right? We don't just avoid wickedness and try to do good things because it makes us feel better or it's just this begrudging, okay, I'll see people get away with wickedness and then I'll try to follow God. I mean, you've got David, Solomon's father, bust out the longest song in history of humanity, right? Psalm 119 saying how much he loves the law of God, how it no longer terrifies him, but it tastes sweet. So so when you become a Christian, right, you're no longer just trying to follow God with this begrudging submission. That's exhausting. What you do is say, man, you go through the commands of God and see why God wants to lead you into life and not take life. So when he says, man, don't have any other gods before me, you don't want another God because every other God has to be appeased in every other system of belief. And he's the only God who says, I'll appease myself through a sacrifice of myself for yourself. It's incredible. When he says, hey, don't take my name in vain, it's not talking about cussing. Don't be trite about the one who saved you. How can I be trite about him? When it says don't do this and do this, you're not doing this and not doing this because you're trying to somehow work out the system of injustice. You're doing and not doing because you want to make him visible and make him seen. This is why I say if you enter into any session, counseling, small group, premarital, whatever, and your whole mantra is fix this thing, I've learned through experience you'll bail very quickly. But if you enter into that going, I want to see more of God and his character and nature and how he made me, it shows that you stick with it much longer. You want to know why? Because you're getting caught up in seeing him and remembering his character and nature and who he is and not how your mental state dictates your status and feelings. This is why I encourage you to read books like The Attributes of God and Knowing God and not Unlocking the Happiness Code. That's, I made that up. It's probably coming. It's probably, you, you'll see it probably next week, right? I mean, there's so much stuff out there. So, man, we want to know him. We want to see him. We want to believe in him. And listen, when we instead say, God, let me remember your place, that you rule and reign, that I'm your child, that I can enjoy life after I've done all that you've asked me to do, that leads to a life that bears good fruit and finds true meaning. Let's ask him to help us to do that. Father, Would you help us know what this looks like for us? Would you help us know when to know when we're outside of our job description? Would you help us, Father, understand what it means to live in freedom, free from sin, free from enslavement, free from eternal torment, loved by you as our Father and as our God? Give us zeal for the kingdom. Give us rest for our weary hearts. We see the religion and the gospel shear away from each other so much as religion alone says, be moral, do good. And then God and you might be able to talk. We see the gospel say, come when you're weary, come when you're heavy laden. I'll give you rest. God, may we find rest only when we find it in the God who made us. Would you help us today? Would you think about conviction if there's lives that are living in secret places? Would it see that God gladly calls them out of their sin, not to take life, but to lead them into life? Would you help us to see you truly, clearly, accurately? And as we sing, would we sing with voices that love you and adore you and praise you for this? And as we take the Lord's Supper, will we take it in a way where we're nourished by remembering that nothing could atone for sin, nothing could make us righteous, nothing could deal with the cosmic injustice of our sin towards you that you satisfied in Jesus alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.